A number of years ago, I was teaching here in the fall during the annual three-month retreat, and it fell to my lot to give a Dharma talk on Columbus Day. Now, Columbus Day is not usually a red-letter day on my calendar. It's, it's not something that I mark out months in advance and anticipate. I'm not usually actually aware of it. But it's kind of a bigger deal here in New England. Specifically, it's more of a, a holiday, so a lot of businesses and things are closed on Columbus Day. And there was some piece of business that I had to take care of. I can't remember what it was now, but I was warned that the office might not be open because it was Columbus Day. So Columbus Day was kind of brought to my consciousness. So I got online and I found that the poet John Kilgore called Christopher Columbus the patron saint of everyone who misses their exit and winds up in Columbus, which I have no idea what the context for that statement was, um, but it Im immediately resonated as a wonderful metaphor for spiritual practice and what we're doing here. When I was a school child um, back in, uh, I learned, as many of us did, a pretty simplified <laughs> and whitewashed version of the story of Christopher Columbus and his first encounter with the Western Hemisphere. But even back then, you know, a central feature of the story was that Christopher Columbus basically messed up. He made a big mistake. He had missed the exit and ended up not in Columbus, but in the Americas, not where he was headed at all, not even close. In 1492, after many years of planning and some very heavy lobbying, he had sailed the ocean blue, headed west for India, right? This is where he was going. That's what he told everyone. That's you know what he pitched to his sponsors and his patrons. Uh, the Ottoman Empire was making it really difficult to get to India over land, so he was going to set out over sea and solve this problem and make everyone involved fabulously wealthy and maybe even convert a few heathens on the way. But the reason it took him so long to organize his voyage is that most of the people that he tried to sell this idea to just thought he didn't know what he was talking about, thought he was really out of his mind. It wasn't so much that they thought the world was flat. You know, we know now that people, educated people of the time didn't really believe that anymore. But they did think that he just grossly miscalculated and that the distance around to Asia was going to be much further than he was saying and that it was just never going to work. He was going to get lost at sea along with all of his patrons' investments and it was all going to come to naught. But what actually ended up happening was option C, none of the above. Instead, Columbus ran into this huge mass of land here that we call America, that no one at that time in Europe really was quite sure was there. Something that Columbus, with all of his optimism, all of his enthusiasm, couldn't have foreseen. Something that his detractors, with all of their pessimism, couldn't have foreseen something that was far more momentous than anyone could have imagined, something that was far beyond the scope of what he had originally intended. Which brings me finally back around to the Dharma and what we're doing here. You know, after making all sorts of plans, all sorts of arrangements, we've managed to launch ourselves on this voyage, on this, voyage, on this journey. And for many of us, there are also people who have implied, more or less directly, that we're also off on a fool's errand and it will all come to naught. 
And very likely, we've set forth also with our own expectations, whether we realize that or not yet, about where we're headed and where we'll arrive by the end of this journey. But actually, we really have no idea where we're headed, which is the very nature of a journey of exploration. By definition, when we head out to survey uncharted territory, whether it's territory out there on the other side of the globe or whether it's territory in here, inside this fathom-long body, we just don't know what we're going to encounter. No matter how carefully we've studied, no matter how carefully we've planned, no matter how carefully we try to arrange and manage everything, we may or may not get to where we think we're going. And we have no way of knowing what we're going to encounter along the way. But expectations can be very difficult to let go of. Columbus uh, also had this challenge. Um, it turns out that after stumbling upon the Americas, you know, this huge discovery, he spent the rest of his life trying to prove that he had actually found India. <laughs> he just couldn't let go of his fixation on, you know, that's what he was out to do. That's what he needed to accomplish. And it can be the same in our practice, that we get so wrapped up in what we think ought to be happening, that we miss what's actually happening, which might be extraordinary. Early on in my practice, I heard this classic Zen story about the danger of expectations. It said that a young man approached a great master and asked to become his student and learn his art. The, pers the prospective student asked the master, how long will it take me to become a master like you, to learn what you know? 15 years, replied the master. So long, exclaimed the young man in dismay. Well, in your case, said the master, reconsidering, 20 years. The young man was alarmed, but he persisted. He said, what if I practice day and night, in every waking hour, de devoting all of my energy to mastering this art? 25 years, replied the master. And the young man now began to get angry. You're talking nonsense, he said. How can it be that if I work harder, it will take longer to achieve my goal? The master said simply, if you have one eye fixed on your destination, then you have only one eye left with which to find your way. So the point of the story, obviously, is not that we shouldn't make our best effort in whatever it is that we're trying to do. And it's also not that we shouldn't have aspirations, some sense of where we're heading, what direction we're pointing ourselves in. In fact, it's very important to have a sense of direction in our spiritual life. And the Buddha often spoke about the importance of wise intentions. This is part of his eightfold path, his comprehensive plan for happiness, to cultivate intentions that lead towards less suffering, aspirations towards kindness, towards compassion, uh, aspirations to cultivate the ability to let go of what we don't need, of what causes harm. But aspirations are very different from expectations. Aspirations acknowledge the open-ended nature of the journey, the unpredictability of it. They look to the big picture and the long term. 
without making demands that things unfold in a certain way according to our wishes as we go along. And without focusing just on our own particular isolated longings, but seeing how our activity in the world is really interconnected with everything else, with everyone else. We can hear that quality in the classic expressions of wise intention that we tend to use in this tradition and in the teachings here. You know, we talk about the aspiration for freedom from suffering for ourselves and for others, the aspiration for liberation of heart and mind, or the aspiration just to be of benefit in some way in the world, of benefit to all beings. These kinds of aspirations arise from a place of faith, that if we make our best effort, if we walk this path with sincerity, that good things will come of it, whatever those might be, and that we can trust the truth to reveal itself in just that way that we needed to, to see it in our own unique bodies and minds and lives. Expectations, on the other hand, really tend to come from a place of fear, out of a lack of trust in the practice, in the process, a lack of faith, that we can't rely on the truth to reveal itself to us in the way that we need. So expectations can become a way of trying almost to micromanage our unfolding, micromanage our process, a way of trying to monitor our progress to make sure that we're okay, to make sure that we're passing the right inner scenery, the right landmarks en route to our final destination. So expectations can reflect a kind of basic discomfort with the unpredictable nature of the spiritual journey. And that quality of doubt in and of itself can actually become a stumbling block to progress because it creates a climate in the mind that's not conducive, not supportive of the very openings that we're seeking. When we have one eye fixed on our goal, then it's, it's really true. We just have that other eye left to find our way with. Back at the end of the last century, I spent a year in Burma uh, living and practicing as a Burmese nun uh, with a teacher called Sayadaw Upandita, who Steve mentioned, who's been an important teacher for all of us. And at one point in my practice, a couple of months in, I had gotten into a very contracted, tight space. I was trying really hard to be diligent and to uh, follow all the instructions, all of the guidelines, but I just wasn't seeing the results that I'd hoped for. I was just really getting exhausted and dejected from all the effort. And one day I was doing my walking meditation outside the, the Dharma Hall, kind of stomping along. And uh, Sayadaw passed by me with a couple of attendants on his way someplace. And he kind of stopped suddenly in front of me as if Something had just occurred to him. He was just remembering something. And he turned to me and he said, tomorrow I will go to the forest, meaning that he was heading out to the country a couple of hours from the city center where I'd been practicing to his, his rural retreat center. And he said, you will come after lunch tomorrow. And then he continued on his way. And at that point, I hadn't been out of that monastery, out of that city, the city center there for a couple of months, about two months I'd been in there. And I really didn't feel like leaving. 
you know, I've been working so hard to develop some continuity, some uh, momentum of mindfulness and concentration, and wasn't getting, you know, as far as I had hoped, but there's something going on still. And I knew that this trip was just really going to disrupt my practice. <clears throat> and I knew that Sayadaw knew it. So I couldn't understand why he wanted me to go with him, why he wanted to kind of take me out of the, the, the track that I was on. But when Sayadaw Upandita says, go, then you go. <laughs> so I went. And when we arrived at the forest center, after this couple hours drive in this kind of dusty open truck, there was another American woman waiting at the gate to take the truck that we'd come in back in the other direction back to the city. And she had sp just finished up spending a year in retreat there out in the country and was now leaving and going home. So as our paths crossed by the truck, we had a chance to talk for just a few minutes and she told me a little bit about what her time in retreat had been like. She said that the experience had been challenging in many ways you know, as we would expect, but that the biggest obstacle had actually been her own expectations. She'd done many retreats like this one here that, that you guys are doing in the West, and she felt she'd made great progress on her path. And she said that she came to practice in Burma really with a feeling that it would kind of be like getting her diploma in meditation, you know, it's kind of the culmination of her meditative career. That she'd done all the right kind of preparation in the West, and she had carved out this year from her life to spend in Burma a good long chunk of time. And she'd be able to have kind of the big breakthrough, you know, at least the first level of enlightenment. And then she'd basically be set for life afterwards. But what happened when she got there and she started practicing was that she was in constant torment due to her expectations. She was constantly evaluating, you know, how is it going? Am I there yet? Uh, what milestones she might have reached? Was she going to make it in her, to her goal in that year that she had? And she said that she went on like this for months, basically worrying about how her practice was going rather than fully devoting herself to the practice. And finally, many months into her retreat, she just gave up. She decided that there was no way she was going to reach her goal in the time she had. She wasn't moving along fast enough. And she was just going to have to give up and try to get through the rest of her time there as best she could, just kind of muddle through. And that was the turning point in her practice. She started practicing then without expectations, just kind of taking things one day at a time, you know, one sitting at a time, one walking at a time, one breath at a time without looking back too much or anticipating the future. And it completely changed her experience. She said that it was only when she had stopped fixating on her goal that she could actually do the things that would eventually lead her there. And she said that she was prepared to spend the rest of her life on that path, whether or not she ever realized anything that she might call enlightenment. So her expectation had been transformed into aspiration. And it was a great teaching for me at the time, and I think Sayadaw probably knew what he was about. There's a wonderful story from the commentaries to the Pali Canon, uh, the Pali Canon being the, the ancient collection of teachings that this style of practice that we do here is based on. 
the story deals with the subject of expectations and practice. And it really shows how little things change from 2,600 years ago, the time of the Buddha. People are still people. It's the story of the venerable Mahasiva, who was a very prominent Buddhist teacher in ancient India, so it's said. And they say that he taught the Buddhist scriptures at 18 different Dharma centers, and that thousands of people had become enlightened under his guidance. And one day, one of his enlightened students was sitting and reflecting on the marvels of enlightenment, how wonderful it was, how many benefits there were that had come to him through it. And it occurred to him that the benefits of his great teacher, Mahasiva, uh, his enlightenment and the benefits of it must be even more impressive. So using his supernormal powers, he explored his teacher's mind from a distance, kind of peeked into his mind. And he was very much surprised to find that Mahasiva was not actually enlightened, not even a little bit. He was just simply an ordinary, unenlightened person, what's uh, called uh, an ordinary worldling in ancient teachings, just like us. So this monk thought, you know, this is no good. How can it be that this great teacher, who's been a benefit to so many people, is not yet enlightened himself? And using his supernormal powers again, he flew off to Mahasiva's monastery in order to remind him to attend to his own practice. And he landed a little ways off from the monastery. You know, he didn't want to create a big stir um, from touching down right in the middle of all the yogis. And he approached Mahasiva and he asked for an interview with him. But Mahasiva said that he was too busy just then. So the monk said, well, what about while you're waiting at the gate of the monastery to go on your alms round a little bit later? We can talk as you're kind of waiting to go out with the other monks. But Mahasiva said that he would be busy then too with some other monks that needed some other things from him. Well, said the monk, how about while you're walking to the village? You know, we can talk as we walk. Mahasiva said he was going to be busy with other things then too. Well, how about while you're having lunch? You know, we can sit and eat and talk. And the monk said, no, I'm going to be busy then too. How about while you're walking back from the village? He was going to be busy. How about after you got back to the monastery? He was going to be busy. How about during the afternoon rest period? Busy. Uh, how about while getting ready for bed? Busy. At all of these times, the teacher was going to be busy. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> so the monk said, to him very directly then, he said, Sir, the way you're living, you don't even have time to die. You should take the time to practice your own meditation while you can. You've been living like a chair. You've been supporting others, but not yourself. And with that, the monk flew back off into the air to his own retreat. At which point, Mahasiva realized that this former student of his hadn't come to learn from him at all, but really to teach him. And he felt quite embarrassed that the student of his had clearly attained great heights of realization, great spiritual powers, while he was still just an ordinary worldling. So he resolved to do something about that and to reach a similar, if not even greater, attainment. So early the next morning, Mahasiva left his monastery to go into retreat. But he only took a few essential items with him, and he didn't even tell anyone that he was leaving. 
he thought, you know, it ought to be pretty easy for somebody like me to get enlightened with everything that I know. I'll only be gone a few days and they'll be back before they even miss me. And then I'll be able to show them all what awesome realizations I've gained. And at that point, it happened to be just two days before the full moon. And Mahasiva thought, you know, this is perfect. I'll practice for two days. I'll get enlightened on the full moon day, just like the Buddha did. That'll be even better. So Mahasiva found a nice spot in a secluded little valley near a village where he could go for alms. And he settled down to practice. And the full moon day came around. And the full moon day passed. And Mahasiva was somewhat surprised to find that he wasn't enlightened yet. But he wasn't too put out at that point. He thought, you know, well, I must just need a little bit more time. Two days isn't very long after all. The rainy season is just getting started, so I'll do a three-month retreat during the rains, as the Buddha recommended, and then I'll be able to return triumphant at the end of it. So Mahasiva kept practicing. And the three months passed, and he still wasn't enlightened. And now Mahasiva started to become alarmed, because it was well known that many monks and nuns became enlightened during the three-month retreat, and yet he hadn't managed it. So he really started to feel inadequate, and the high opinion that he'd had of himself started to crumble. And he sat down and he wept bitterly with disappointment and despair. And from then on, it's said that Mahasiva kept his bedroll folded up. He spent all of his time practicing intensively, and he didn't even lie down to rest, fearing that he might lose precious time to practice. And in this way, he passed 30 years in retreat. And at the end of every rainy season, when he found that yet another year had passed and he still wasn't enlightened, he would sit down and cry with discouragement and self-pity. At the end of the 30th year, as he was sitting and crying, as was his wont, he happened to notice the sound of someone else also crying nearby, which caught him somewhat by surprise, because this little valley where he was living was very secluded, and he rarely encountered other human beings there. So he kind of looked around, and he called out, who's there? Who's crying? A little voice came back, I am a deva, sir being a celestial being that was passing through the area there. What are you doing crying here, said said Mahasiva. Well, I was just passing by and noticed how you were practicing. And based on your example, I figured I could attain two or three stages of enlightenment at least just by crying. (laughs) So I thought I'd give it a try. And with that, the deva let out a little laugh (laughs) and disappeared. Well, as you can imagine, this kind of caught Mahasiva off guard. He thought to himself, you know, has it come to this, that even the passing devas are mocking me? But then he reflected on what the deva had said. And he realized that actually the deva had a point. That as hard as he had been practicing for all these years, all the time it had been with an attitude of dejection and self-pity. And he had never seen it. He had never realized it. It was as if he could see his own heart and mind for the first time. So Mahasiva directed his attention to those difficult emotions, seeing them with clarity and with compassion. And little by little, his mind calmed, his discouragement abated, and he began to develop mindfulness 
and concentration and insight. And in this way, Mahasiva eventually became one of the Arahants, a fully enlightened being, free from all suffering. So I love this story for many reasons, not the least of which being the deva's role. But it makes some great points about our relationship to expectations in practice. The most obvious being what a hindrance our own expectations can become if we're not aware of them, if we don't recognize them, if we get caught up in them, then we can end up in a holding pattern where we're kind of circling around and around our idea of what ought to be happening so that we're never able to actually fully connect with what is happening. Like Mahasiva, we may be striving very hard, we may be making a great effort, but just not getting anywhere because we only have that one eye with which to find our way. Now most of us probably haven't come on this retreat expecting full enlightenment, probably not even the first stage. But expectations come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. You know, we can have all sorts of expectations for this retreat. Expectations for during the retreat, for after the retreat, expectations for the day, for the sitting, for this talk, expectations for the next breath or the next step, the next moment. And to the extent that these go unrecognized, we're really not fully in touch with what's happening in our experience. We're missing out on a really important dimension of what's going on. Another point that this story makes has to do with the futility of disappointment, the futility of discouragement and self-pity, which is not to say that they shouldn't arise. They'll arise when conditions are there for them to arise. They're very natural feelings. But there's not just that there's nothing to be gained from buying into those stories, which after all are really just stories that we tell ourselves. And to the extent that those also go unrecognized, unexamined, to the extent that they remain outside the scope of our attention, then they can really take over our heart and mind and stifle our practice. Mahasi Sayada, a great meditation master of the 20th century, who was a teacher to Upandita, and uh, kind of the grandfather of the style of practice that we're teaching, gave the following very simple instructions for how to deal with discouragement and self-pity. He said, when experiencing distress associated with the practice, know that distress associated with the practice is being experienced. It was very typical of his style. <laughs> so it's just so straightforward. It's so simple, really. All we need to do is just not buy into the story, the story of discouragement, the story of failure, the story of disappointment, whatever it is we're telling ourselves, but just to bring that experience, those feelings, those mental states right into our practice, right into our awareness as just another thing to be known, to be understood, just another thing to see its nature. There's never been, I think, a sincere spiritual seeker who didn't experience periods of doubt, and disappointment and discouragement. You know, that's all um, a natural and inevitable part of this process. Even the Buddha himself had to face self-doubt self on the night of his enlightenment, 
from his, the very famous story of the night of his enlightenment, when Mara, who's that embodiment of all of our difficult mental states, came to him and asked him, you know, who do you think you are to be sitting there under the Bodhi tree, aspiring to become a Buddha, aspiring to full enlightenment to the, for the benefit of all beings? But in the face of these kinds of difficult mental states, the trick is just to remember, as the Buddha did, to be mindful of them, to just regard them as we would any other passing thought or feeling, to just say to Mara, as the Buddha did, I see you, I see you there, I see what you're up to. He didn't push Mara away, he just named him and recognized him. Once we bring those feelings and thoughts into awareness, then they lose their power over us, they lose their threat. It's relatively easy within the context of a retreat like this to think that our thoughts and our feelings about practice um, somehow get a special exemption from our awareness, from mindfulness. You know, we tend to realize pretty quickly that thinking about the past, thinking about the future, getting into a lot of philosophical or theoretical thought is not so productive in the context of what we're doing here. But then we may turn around and indulge our thoughts and feelings about our practice. You know, how are we doing? What's going on? Um, thinking that somehow those thoughts are different from other thoughts, that they're somehow more important or more relevant or more useful. But in fact, they're just other thoughts. They're just more thoughts and really need to be treated with exactly the same quality of awareness as anything else that might come up because ultimately they are exactly like anything else that might come up. There's really nothing special about that. If we lose sight of this and we buy into them, then it can really become a hindrance. They can keep us from finding the satisfaction in our practice that we're craving. Another lesson that we can learn from the story of Mahasiva is the importance of finding a good teacher, someone who can point out to us where we're stuck in our practice. Because Mahasiva was so knowledgeable, because he was a great scholar and so accustomed to being in the teaching role himself, he just assumed that he'd be able to navigate his way through his practice on his own. But in fact, once he got going, he simply didn't have the perspective on his own process to see how he was getting caught up in his expectations. If he'd been working with a teacher, he would have probably had this pointed out to him pretty quickly rather than having to wait you know, 30 years for this snide David to come along and point it out to him. And this is really true for all of us. You know, no matter how long we've been at this, uh, how much ground we may have covered, how much territory we may have mapped, we never really know what's waiting for us around the next bend, around the next retreat. Which is a good thing, really, because otherwise we wouldn't be exploring anymore. We wouldn't be expanding our horizons anymore. So it's really important to have people in our lives that can help us to navigate as we go along. There's another story from the commentaries that deals with this topic of the importance of finding a good teacher. Just as we can have expectations for ourselves in practice, uh, we can have expectations regarding our teachers on the path of who they ought to be, what they ought to be how they ought to behave. And this can also become a hindrance if we let it get in the way of getting what we need on our path. 
In the time of the Buddha, there was another monk named Potila. And he was apparently one of these people that today we would say he had a photographic memory. And it was said that he had memorized the complete teachings of six previous Buddhas during his various lifetimes. So this was kind of a habit of his. And if you've seen the shelf space that the Buddhist teachings take up, that's really saying something. And during the time of our own historical Buddha, the Shakyamuni Buddha, he also did this. He memorized the complete teachings, all of the discourses that the Buddha gave. And because of this great store of theoretical knowledge that he had, he was sought out as a teacher by many people. And he was very satisfied with this knowledge, with his power of recall and the clarity of his intellectual faculties. So he didn't bother to meditate. But one thing really irked him. And that was that whenever he met with the Buddha, the Buddha would always address him as foolish potila, <laughs> which is not usually what we think of the Buddha doing. So he probably had his reasons. And Potila just couldn't understand it. He didn't know what, was, what that was all about. He thought, you know, I know the enlightened one's entire teachings by heart, forwards and backwards. I've got, taught scores of students. You know, what's with the foolish Potila business? You know, what, what's that about? But after this had gone on for a while and he'd reflected on it quite a bit, Potila realized, well, you know, it must be because I haven't meditated. So I don't have the practical knowledge to go with all of my theoretical knowledge. So he decided to take care of that, to fix that problem. He thought, I'll go off, I'll do a period of retreat, and get enlightened, and then there won't be any more of this foolish potila business. So he asked around about good places to practice, and he heard about one place that sounded really great. It was some distance away from where he was living, but it was in a secluded little forest hermitage that was said to be inhabited by 30 arahants who were all excellent meditation teachers. And it was a great place to get enlightened quickly. Venerable Potila thought, that sounds like the place for me, which I can completely understand. <laughs> <laughs> so he arranged his affairs and gathered up his things and he set off for the secluded little monastery. And eventually he found the place, and it was pretty rustic, really. It wasn't actually a monastery per se, but just a spot out in the forest where this group of arahants had set up camp. And they lived very, very simply, you know, just sleeping and sitting at the roots of the trees and making do with very, very little. So Venerable Potila was a bit daunted when he saw the living conditions. But as he walked into the camp, he could feel that there was something special about this place, that there was a quality of stillness and tranquility about it that he'd really never encountered before. The arhats were all kind of moving about mindfully, taking care of whatever they needed to do with this air of serenity and joy that really moved him. And he thought, you know, these guys know something that I don't know. And he began to feel for the first time a real aspiration to purify his heart and mind rather than just simply to prove himself to the Buddha. So he approached the eldest monk and he asked for meditation instructions. And the senior monk there kind of sized him up, talked to him a little bit, and sensed that even though Venerable Potila had some sincerity of aspiration, he was still pretty impressed with himself, pretty full with himself. 
So the monk told him that, well, he did, didn't really have time to take on another student just then, but why wouldn't, didn't he go talk to the second senior monk, the next uh, in seniority? And the second most senior monk spoke with Upotila a bit and came to basically the same conclusion as the first monk and sent him to speak to the third most senior monk, who sent him to speak to the fourth most senior monk, who sent him to speak to the fifth most senior, and so on down the line. And as he descended through the ranks of seniority of the community of monks there, asking for guidance first from monks who were his seniors, and then from monks who were his peers, and finally from monks who were his juniors, he started to get the message that these arahants really couldn't care less, that he had memorized the entire canon of the Buddha. And he became increasingly determined to know what it was that they knew that he didn't. Eventually, Venerable Potila found himself asking for meditation instructions from the youngest arahant in the group, who just happened to be a seven-year-old novice. The Buddha used to say that he taught the Dharma in such a way that a seven-year-old child could understand it. And so we have quite a few stories from the canon about seven-year-old arahants running around. So Venerable Potila found himself asking for instructions from this very young monk, which just a short time before would have been you know, inconceivable to him, preposterous. But by this time, Venerable Patila really had no pride left. They had broken him. And he was just desperate for someone here at this monastery to give him meditation instructions. So he paid his respects to the little arahant as humbly as he could, and he asked for his guidance. And the novice could see that Venerable Potila was really in earnest, but he wasn't sure if he'd really be able to place his trust in him and follow his instructions diligently. So the novice demurred a bit. He said, oh, Venerable Sir, I am still very young and not very knowledgeable. I am the one who should be learning from you. But Venerable Potila was having none of it, and he persisted in his request. Well, if you will follow my instructions exactly, said the novice, I will teach you how to practice meditation. At which Venerable Patila replied with great fervor, even if you ask me to walk through fire, I'll do exactly as you say. Really, said the novice, who was, after all, seven years old. <laughs> well, then go and walk into the pond, he said, pointing at the, the little pond that was nearby that the community drew its water from. And without a moment's hesitation, Venerable Potila immediately walked off toward the pond and started to wade in. But just as the edge of his robe skinned the water, the novice called him back and agreed to teach him meditation. So Venerable Patila began to practice with the guidance of the little arahant. And it's said that because Venerable Patila was so sincere and he trusted his teacher so completely, that he made quick progress in his meditation, avoiding many possible pitfalls. And in time with practice, Venerable Potila also became one of the Arhants. So this story really points out the importance of recognizing that the important teachers in our lives and on our spiritual journey don't always come in the forms that we expect. You know, on the most literal level, they may not be the specific person that we had hoped or expected to learn from. 
They may not be the most senior monk at the monastery, so to speak. But this lesson also applies equally to all of the other types of teachers that we encounter in our practice and on our path. All of the difficult circumstances, all of the difficult experiences, all of the difficult habits and tendencies of our minds and bodies that aren't really what we want to have to learn from in our practice. But in fact, our most important teacher during our time here may turn out to be our roommate, or our partner for our yogi job, or maybe our VV, our Vipassana Vendetta, who's that fellow yogi doing that really annoying and clearly inappropriate thing that just keeps intruding on our practice, you know, and that needs to stop before we can get anywhere. Or it may turn out to be the pain in our back, or in our neck, or in our knees, or in our head that just won't let up, no matter how we try to bargain with it, how we try to manage it. It may turn out to be sleepiness, or restlessness, or fear, or lust, or anger. It may turn out to be that obsessive thought pattern that we know we've just got to find some way to let go of so that we can actually get down to practicing. Important teachers come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes and packages. But if we're attached to certain ideas about who and what we're willing to learn from, and who and what we're not willing to learn from, then we may miss out on all sorts of opportunities to grow and awaken. You know, if Venerable Potila had decided that he just wasn't willing to accept a seven-year-old meditation teacher, he may have wandered off into the woods to practice on his own and spent 30 years spinning his wheels like Mahasiva. So at those times when we feel like we're up against something in our practice that's really impeding our progress, it's worth reflecting, you know, that maybe this might be our seven-year-old arhat. Come to show us just exactly what it is that we need to learn at this point in our lives, in our practice. And can we muster the simplicity? Can we find the sincerity, the humility, to listen to whatever it has to tell us? There's another story from the commentaries about a monk called Nangala. And this man had been a very poor agricultural laborer, working in other people's fields from sunrise to sunset, day in, day out, doing this very demanding work for just enough reward to keep himself alive. And one day, a passing monk saw him hard at work in the fields with his heavy plow and his tattered clothes. And he urged him to leave that life behind and to come and become a monk, where he would have the possibility of gaining great benefits in exchange for his hard work compared to the meager benefits that he was getting in his current lifestyle. And Nangala didn't really understand at that point what would be involved in becoming a monk. He hadn't had any contact with the Buddha or his teachings or his followers. But he figured it couldn't be any worse than the life he'd been living, which is really not too different from how a lot of us <laughs> come to practice. So he went along with the monk, carrying his plow with him. And when he got to the monastery, he was ordained. And when he formally undertook the precept to give up all his worldly possessions, his preceptor told him to go outside the monastery and to leave his old clothes and his plow in the hollow of a tree somewhere outside the monastery grounds. 
And for a while, the venerable Nangala was quite content with the monastery. He ate better, he slept better, he was treated better, and he enjoyed the quiet and the relative ease compared to the life of hard labor that he'd been living. But after a while, he got a bit bored with his practice. You know, he started running into difficult mental states. And one day he thought, you know, well, this has been nice, but I think I've had enough. And as he started to make his way out of the monastery, he happened to catch a glimpse of his old clothes and his plow that he had left in, in the hollow of a nearby tree. And seeing those reminders of the oppression of his former life, he immediately lost all desire to leave the monastery and go back to all of that. And in fact, he was filled with a renewed sense of purpose to persevere in his practice and to realize the peace and freedom that he knew others around him had. But he still didn't have an easy time at the monastery. He'd quite often feel frustrated. He'd quite often feel bored. His body bothered him after so many years of abusing it. But now, whenever those feelings arose in him, he'd go out and visit the tree where he'd left his plow and his old clothes. And he would reflect on the misery of his former life. And that would give him the energy and the inspiration to carry on a little bit longer. It's said that during the whole time that he was practicing, he would go out to his tree every few days, in fact, in order to get a little injection of uh, enthusiasm and inspiration over and over again, almost as if he was going for interviews with a teacher, which didn't go unnoticed by the other monks at the monastery. And when they asked him what on earth he was doing, he would reply, well, I need to go out and consult my teacher again. And for many years, his fellow monks teased him about this. So they were quite surprised when one day he suddenly stopped visiting the tree. They didn't understand why he'd suddenly changed his habit. So they went and they asked the Buddha about this. And the Buddha said that it was very simple, that Venerable Nangala had become one of the Arahants. And I think we all have teachers like this in our practice at one time or another. Those reminders of difficulties and suffering that we may revisit over and over again. But if we're willing to learn from them, then they can be a powerful source of inspiration, a powerful source of strength and patience and perseverance, even though they're rarely the teachers that we would wish for, not the ones that we would choose. When we come for a period of retreat, we're bound to begin this journey with certain ideas about it. And that's okay. That's perfectly natural. It's a lot of work to get here. It's a lot of work to stay here. And we wouldn't do it if we didn't expect to get something out of it. But it's also so important to keep an open mind about what should happen once we're here, about how it should all unfold. A retreat like this is really an epic adventure. You know, it's equal to anything in history, anything in fantasy. It's a journey into the unknown, and we're bound to learn from it. There's no way we really can't. We just have no idea beforehand what we're going to learn from it, or how. That's the mystery. And that's really a big part of the joy of this process, the joy of discovery the joy of seeing how our own unique path unfolds 
moment by moment and day by day, even in our most difficult moments, just exactly as it should for each of us, just exactly as it must. I'd like to end with this poem from the great Zen master, Bilbo Baggins, otherwise known as The Hobbit. This was the song that he sang to himself as he walked the path of his epic adventure. The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road has gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with eager feet until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet. And whither then? I cannot say. Let's sit just for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.